Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show, as always, is Alex Jerry. Alex, your wife and kid return today after being gone for three weeks. How did you spend your last few days family-free? Uh, same way I spent the first few days family-free, which is just high doing this is hell work. Uh, more importantly than my family... Do you notice the dollar? <laughs> That's a nice phrase to start off uh, the week with. Do you notice the dollar store, like three blocks away from us, is now a fifty cent store? Oh, really? It says half off everything at the dollar store. Uh, I had no idea that that's what 50 Cent is going into as a business franchise, because that's a great idea for This is is a bad sign when we got 50 Cent stores. (laughs) It was a bad sign when we got, what, the third or fourth dollar store in the neighborhood, and the alderman sent out an email to everybody excited about the new dollar store in the neighborhood, which is not really what we needed, as there were two within a three-block radius of the new dollar store. Oy, this neighborhood. Oh, my God. The political leadership in this neighborhood. Uh, if there was only some leadership. Uh, f- uh, by the way, thanks to everybody who sent emails about my stomach problems last week. I got so many emails over the weekend with people offering all sorts of different cures and ways to fix my stomach problems. And I really, really appreciate it. I'll be sharing some of those during listener feedback, maybe tomorrow, maybe Wednesday. But I just want to say I truly, truly appreciate all of your very kind words of support. Today, none of us want to be back, right back here again in a few days, weeks, months, or years, back protesting racialized violence by police against people of color. There's all this hope that things might be changing. Everyone's excited about a potential tipping point in U.S. history with support of the protesters and their cause growing every day, just as a feeling of rising awareness seems to actually be having an impact on society, just when a real sea change seems to be on the horizon. An Atlanta police officer shoots a black man in the back, sentencing the victim to capital punishment for falling asleep in his car while in the Wendy's drive-thru. So what can be done to make certain that this time, this time, there is real institutional change? What can be done this time to ensure us all that violent police will not be enforcing laws with the barrel of a gun that unfairly benefit a small and very wealthy fraction of the population so they may thrive in luxury while they line their pockets with the suffering of others. We'll take a long, hard look at what this movement is all about and what it could and should be about when we have the return of African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the nonsite.org article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. Cedric is Associate Professor of African-American Studies and Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His 2007 book, Revolutionaries Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, was named the 2008 W.E.B. Du Bois Outstanding Book of the Year by the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. Cedric also edited the 2011 collection, The Neoliberal Deluge, about Hurricane Katrina. He was on our show back in May of last year when we talked with him about his article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like for Too Long, the Left Has Organized, based on caricatures of black political life. If it wants to win, it needs to start recognizing that role of class in black America now. And I'm going to want to, let me circle that right now. I'm going to want to ask Cedric.
Cedric how that article relates to what is happening right now with the protests. You can find out, you can hear that interview by going to our website, thisishell.com, and just search on Cedric's first name. We've interviewed a lot of Johnsons, but not very many Cedrics. So just search on the name Cedric, and you will find our interview from 2019, which was, I think, our most downloaded interview of 2019. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is White Willow Bark. In an article titled, How to Cure a Bad Hangover, a Helpful Guide at GoPurpleTree.com. Uh, go to, but, right? They report, for those who suffer from a headache the morning after, white willow bark is for you, rich in salicylates. White willow bark is both anti-inflammatory and analgesic, making it a great remedy for hangovers. It is the original aspirin, after all. No wonder they call it nature's aspirin. Who are they? Who are these people? The article suggests you take white willow bark immediately before going to sleep after a night of drinking. <laughs> okay, I'll just get my hands on some white willow bark. That makes this week's hangover cure via gopurpletree.com, white willow bark, or nature's aspirin <laughs> nature's aspirin i take a nature's uh, aspirin. i just went to gopurpletree.com uh. and uh it doesn't look like that site works no it doesn't work <laughs> it might have been taken down really big, a- big aspirin <laughs> big aspirin took it down uh i use nature's aspirin every day this is not the media this is hell and it's not white willow bark i'll tell you that right now guns don't kill people People kill people, but people with guns are more likely to kill people, and cops with guns are really good at it, especially when it comes to, you know, killing black people. Look, we all want there to be fewer black people killed by cops. Hell, we want fewer people murdered, period. But we gotta put up with people having free and easy access to guns because it's a constitutional right, and them's the rules, and they can't be changed. But the rules can be changed, you know. Like the old implicit constitutional right to own slaves when the federal government left it up to each individual state if they wanted to allow slavery or not. Can you imagine if before the Civil Civil War, your hot take on slavery was, sure, I'm against it, but you know, they don't say it's wrong in the Constitution and the Founding Fathers knew best, so what are you going to do? Of course, with so many white people freaked out right now buying guns en masse when they were told to self-quarantine, turning their homes into warm, cozy, uninviting fortresses of paranoia, then quickly losing patience, grabbing their guns, and leaving those well-defended citadels to march on evil state capitals filled with demons who dare to shut businesses, where a deadly virus could most likely be transmitted and end up killing people, spreading and killing even more people. Those gun owners then went out and got more guns as soon as they saw images of, on TV of black people being killed by cops, which meant their denialism of racialized violence within policing was no longer sustainable and frankly shameful, with guns being a very hot commodity right now, rolling back the ease and access to higher tech and more powerful guns. It ain't going to be easy. Especially now, because when Whitey feels shame for what they've done, they drive as fast as they can to be the, get to the nearest gun shop, only to just as quickly retreat to their bunker of false victimhood and persecution. The cut-and-paste social media politics of the right at this moment is they are the victims. It goes something like this. I'm white, so I must be racist, right? I'm not a Muslim, so I must be a homophobe or an Islamophobe. I'm not gay, so I must be a homophobe. Slavery happened long before any of my family came to the United States, yet somehow slavery is and all this racism is my fault. It's all of the classic denialism the right has had for centuries in order to allow for the continued persecution, unfairness, inequality, and deadly violence opposed upon the other, the disposable low-wage caste whose hard work fills their portfolios. So for those of you who think we can fix the police, we can't. Reform it into good policing, that's impossible. Who are certain it's merely a problem of a few bad apples, it isn't and isolated cases that do not reflect upon all cops or policing more generally. Policing is an imperialist institution that imposes the will of the wealthy on the poor, keeping them in a low-wage caste within capitalism that has no place in a democracy. May I suggest one simple reform, one quick 
fix that will change policing as we know it, but unfortunately not end policing, which we all know we need to do, and fast. This singular reform you could promote right now using the appropriate channels of the system we currently have, working within that system from getting a petition to enacting a law, playing by the rules of the rigged game that have been rigged against people who are killed by police since this country began, my suggested quick fix is, again, this won't fix all that much. Prohibit police from wearing body armor of any kind, no bulletproof vests, no ass-kicking boots, no protective headwear of any kind. Get that one single reform passed into law and watch the dominoes of U.S. policy on guns suddenly fall. Cops and their supporters will immediately say it is not safe considering the high-tech, high-powered weaponry on the streets. So there will be a sudden call to make all those guns inaccessible, if not illegal to own, let alone manufacture in the U.S., except for military purposes, you know, to satisfy the support the troops crowd who oddly show their support by sending troops into war when you would think the people who really support troops wouldn't want troops to, you know, go to war and die. By taking the bulletproof vests off, you could then take guns off the streets that should have never been there in the first place. It's as if the military-industrial complex and the gun industry conspired. First, they asked cops if they wanted vests. The cops said no because gaining citizens' trust was a good way at controlling the population. It's part of their counterinsurgency strategy. And it's hard to gain trust when you're wearing something that says, I think you're about to shoot me. With the cops saying no to body armor, the gun industry lobbied Congress for more easy and free access to more high-tech, high-powered guns, leading to more and more people having more firepower than the police. Suddenly, the cops wanted that kind of firepower, and now that the bad guys have those guns too, maybe those bulletproof vests aren't such a bad idea after all. This caused the police to respond to become further militarized with weapons brought from the same military-industrial complex and gun industry that was pushing vests when cops didn't need them at all, but now they do thanks to the power of the gun lobby. It's like the industry of death set, up with, set us up with uh, deadly cops who can kill with impunity and impose their will with little risk as they're packed safe in their cocoons of Kevlar. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying we need new gun laws. Gun control would be only a small component of any campaign to protect citizens from police. But you take that body armor off of cops, and you will definitely hear a change in their tune when it comes to policing. You cannot fix the police. You can only abolish the very concept of policing. Stop regulating the poor. End controlling the underclass through the threat of deadly, violent force. Prohibit managing people at the end of a barrel of a gun. Policing needs to be stopped now. Doing anything short of that, and we'll be right back at this same place again in the future. And yet again, we'll be right here saying, this is hell. Coming up, Nothing should be above criticism, and that includes Black Lives Matter. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in talk radio so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Support for those protesting police violence is around twice the level of support for President Trump. There has been an impact on rhetoric, on culture, on the level of awareness of racialized police violence. But how can this lead to sustained change so protesters are not back out in the streets next year or the year after that or the year after that, still demanding the end of what our guest calls carceral power? Returning to This Is Hell to help us understand what the larger project of the movement could and should be. African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson wrote the nonsite.org article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Cedric. 
Hey, great to be here. Cedric was on our show back in May of last year when we talked with him about his article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like for Too Long. The left has organized based on caricatures of black political life. If it wants to win, it needs to start recognizing the role of class in black America. You can find that interview by going to our website, thisishell.com, and search on the name Cedric because we've had lots of people named Johnson on the show, but only one named Cedric, and you can find him a lot easier that way. Cedric, let me just get back to your article. I was just thinking of this when I was reading your introduction earlier on the show. What black life actually looks like for too, too long, the left has organized based on caricatures of black political life. Do you see the white left or the left in general currently organizing based on caricatures of black political life when it comes to the protests against the murder of George Floyd? Well, I think in many ways we're right back to where we were before, right? Um, if anything, this this moment is gonna uh, is already creating a renewal of of some of those old ideas about um, blacks constituting a community, which is a a, a falsehood, right? Um, we're like nearing forty six million as far as population, um, so that's incompatible with any notion of a, a community. There are black communities around the country that matter. Um, but what happens is we end up moving from really old notions of black life that are derived from Jim Crow segregation, right? And when black people were largely excluded from public life uh, and therefore had to rely upon various brokers in order to advance whatever interests they had um, into a space now where we're still using those categories. We're still talking about black people as a community. We still assume that blacks are a constituency with shared, widely shared interests. Uh, and what that does, I think ultimately it, it, it really leads away from the kinds of conversations we need to have about what specific constituencies within the black population want and, um, and what they are trying to work for in this particular moment. But I think, I think, again, I think we're going back to, you know, revisiting some of the same ideas that I criticized and others have criticized before. That's the idea that there is monolithic black political thought. What do you think leads the left? What do you think leads the white left to believe that there is monolithic monolithic black political thought when we all know that that is not the case? There have been black conservatives since the first uh, African-Americans in this country, I'm sure. So what explains to you why the left would believe that there is monolithic black political thought? Well, I mean, I think part of it, you know... Um we're dealing with a situation where uh, what we witnessing in terms of police killings, you know, seeing is believing, right? So we've seen multiple videos of um, mostly black men being killed by police, in many cases unarmed. And I think, you know, that has a powerful sway on how people perceive the world, right? You don't necessarily have to read about it. You don't have to look at um, actual statistics and cross-sectional, you know, uh, cross-tabulation of of, um, of the real the real numbers, but the conclusion is easy, right? We've seen black death, you know, uh, enacted on on television. We know that for a long time within um, within American life, blacks have symbolized the poor, right? I mean, the right wing was really good at at presenting us with the image of a, a you know a black welfare queen or welfare cheat. And so I think many people still have, for good or bad, this idea that black people are, um, you know, black people not only are the the poor, the incarcerated, the dispossessed, right? Um, That that tends to still shape the way we talk about this. The other thing is I think there's, there's a lot of organizations, a number of organizations, you know, coming out of the civil rights movement, others that have been created since, who occupy that niche within um, political life, right? That if you think about the old uh, classic civil rights organizations, they shifted from fighting against Jim Crow to essentially becoming interest group type organizations within the broader American political arena and largely fighting against um, the rollback of uh, various gains that were made during the 1960s, as well as the remnants of, of the New Deal, right? So I think you end up with a, a situation where you've got organizations who are primarily charged with trying to defend civil rights and still tending to frame inequality within the context of, of race, right? Um, because that's what they've always done. 
The other thing is I think with social media, you know, now you have another dimension added to the mix where before, at least with some of those civil rights organizations, there's a level of, of organization, there's a level of, of hierarchy within in terms of uh, who gets to represent, what sort of messaging is going out. Now it's pretty much a free-for-all, and any person can step up and, and begin to present themselves as a representative of this black body politic, right? And it's difficult, I think, for many whites to challenge that, right, just because of the kinds of discourse that we have where if you challenge it, you, you run the risk of possibly being labeled racist and canceled in this online, you know, social media culture. So there's a, there's a new uh, set of rules, there's a new decorum, a new set of norms and expectations about how we engage, which is both derived from the earlier politics of, of uh, Jim Crow and racial exclusion, but also unfolding on this new terrain of, of technology which doesn't really have a whole lot of accountability mechanisms <laughs> built in. You know, it's sort of like any person can say what they want and any person can be brought down quickly by uh, a social media mob. So I think it's a dangerous terrain. And many people, I think, even though they, they see the difference, they know that these issues are much more complicated. They're still worried about the possibilities of being dragged by somebody on social media. It's that, I think that's one of the things that prohibits, you know, folks on the left and, and other, you know, people, even blacks from speaking out against the grain. It's that power of guilt and shame that you write about. And it's uh, it, it it actually lacks a power. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. I, I just want to ask you, because of things that happened this weekend, we were told we might be at some type of tipping point by very, very optimistic people when things actually change right. in the United States, when institutionalized racism and the violent enforcement of property rights by the police are reconsidered as unequal, unfair, even deadly. Then Rayshard Brooks is shot in the back and killed by Atlanta police. What does this weekend's shooting reveal to you about the efficacy or any impact the protests have had when these kinds of shootings continue? Well, I mean, obviously it's not changing some of these police officers' behavior, right? I mean, that that video of uh, Rayshard Brooks killing this was was devastating. I think um, the worst part of the video is is to see him negotiating with the police beforehand. And it reminded me of uh, Samuel DuBose's killing in Cincinnati back in 2015. Similar situation. He's being stopped uh, by a University of Cincinnati police officer, even though he's not on technically on the campus um, and do both same sort of negotiation with the cop. And then he tries to flee and is shot as a result of it. And you just have to wonder, like, what are these officers thinking, given everything that's happened, right? I mean, I think some people are rebelling, right, against the, the criticisms that are being made. But I think what part of what, what's revealed to me is that the, the protests in and of themselves are not enough. Um, we have to think in terms of how do we build, you know, real legislative majorities to change things, right? It's not enough to just simply protest to the point where you get an arrest of an officer or a firing um, or some sort of grand jury indictment. It's not enough to ask for police chiefs to resign only to have some other person who's picked from the same, you know, pool and the same training, same background into a new, you know, a new slot. We have to think about majorities, right? And I'm not so sure we're there yet. I also think there's a discord between how many activists are perceiving this moment, because I've heard numerous friends who, who seem to think, you know, at least in, in the heat of the early protests and some of the riots that happened in different cities, that we were on the verge of some major transformation. And I think that was wrongheaded, right? That was wrong in the sense that there's millions of people out there who are protesting. And, you know, if, I'm, if we're going to talk about black people not being a monolith, we think about the entire American um, citizenry and the kinds of people who are out protesting. They were out there for different reasons. I mean, some people were, um, you know, conservatives who've now woken up to the fact that black people are disproportionately killed by the, by the police. Some were uh, liberals who felt it was their, their duty to step out and to take a position on this um, because they have blacks who they're connected to and they, didn't want, they, they no longer wanted to remain silent. So there's all sorts of different motivations. And I think the mo maybe the most important thing is many Americans don't necessarily share the same um, commitment to uh, 
abolition or dismantling of police departments or even defunding police departments. Most Americans, poll after poll, have a problem with police force, you know, excessive use of force. Most Americans now, as a result, I think, of these protests and all the Black Lives Matter organizing that's happened in the last few years, have come to the position that black people are unfairly and disproportionately targeted by police and more likely to experience excessive force. I think that's one of the accomplishments of Black Lives Matter as a, as a phenomenon. But at the same time, most Americans don't necessarily want to see downsizing of police. They actually want more effective policing. Um, so I think that's a, the that's a difference between what the activists are saying and what the broader public is saying. And that's true even of black uh, populations, right? Black communities the same sentiment uh, is there, right? They actually don't want to see police killing African-Americans, but they also want to see more effective policing. And I think that's something that as we move forward, um, activists, intellectuals, other people who are trying to weigh in on these issues have to be mindful of. You write that while a slim majority of Americans now believe police are more likely to use excessive force against blacks than other groups, millions more do not share the most militant calls to defund or dismantle police departments voiced by some activists. I'm really lucky, Cedric, because as a Christmas gift from a nephew, I got a subscription to a small town newspaper in northern Michigan. And it's a, you know... Ninety percent white community that votes two thirds for Trump, and their letters to the editor are just amazing because a lot of pro-Trump stuff. But in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, not only did the newspaper not run any article about the murder of George Floyd, the only thing that showed up were in the letters of the editor, and the points that were made were interesting. Uh, one person said, this is absolutely awful. This kind of racialized police violence, that what happened to George Floyd is really, really horrible. But you know mm-hmm. what? We got to remember, this is just a few bad apples in the police department. Right. Another person said, hey, look, I understand this is really horrible what happened to George Floyd, but we shouldn't be protesting in every city in the United States. This only happened in Minneapolis. I saw yesterday, or I guess this was Friday, a poll that showed 64% of people supported Black Lives Matter. And another 64% were against defunding the police. What to you explains this intense defense of police? What seems to be a fear of an end of policing when people understand that the police have an institutional racist problem when it comes to violence? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think there's a, it's a complicated thing as far as the, the place of police within American popular imagination, right? I mean, you can't turn on the television right now. You know, there's no way we can get through this day without turning on the television and seeing at least one program where police are the subject, right? And, and I know recently, I think cops and a few other programs have been pulled, um, but, you know, for the most part, if you think about popular movies, right, buddy cop comedies, various sitcoms where, you know, the police officer is the center, uh, central character, um, you know, all sorts of detective and crime uh, television dramas, as well as, uh, you know, film that we've, we've all grown up to, to, to love and to watch and enjoy. So I think police occupy a contradictory place in American society, right? On the one hand, they are seen by many people as guardians. And I think, you know, if we go back to the, the origins of the old thin blue line notion, it does reveal why we're both connected to police, but then also the, the immediate problems of it, right? When, when William H. Parker coined that phrase uh, in the post-war years, William H. Parker being the chief of police of, of Los Angeles, um, during the 1950s and all the way up until the, the Watts riots, uh, used that phrase as a way of talking about the role that police should play within society, right? They should be the thin blue line protecting uh, middle-class virtue, middle-class um, society, middle-class interests from all sorts of potential threats. And in his mind, those threats were organized crime, uh, what he called godless communism, and also those working class and poor blacks who were then filling up the South Central uh, area of Los Angeles, migrating from Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi. And Parker 
was clear, right? He actually had in his mind a very clear sense of who the who the good people were, who the the you know who the people who deserved protection, and who were those that needed to be controlled, right? And that those ideas became increasingly clear uh, in the 1960s. And one of his biggest opponents, people forget this, one of his biggest opponents was actually Tom Bradley, who was a beat cop. You know, Tom Bradley was then later going to become the first black uh, mayor of Los Angeles and would have a long reign all the way up through um, the 1992 uh, Los Angeles rebellion, right? So there's a lot of interesting connections here, but Tom Bradley was opposed to the kind of policing that, uh, even as he was a, a beat cop, he was actually opposed to the strategies that were undertaken by the Parker administration. And I think we have to return to that, right? It's really within that post-war period, um, the making of America as we, as we understand it, the making of the middle class, Policing evolved as a way of, of protecting middle class interests, right? Protecting newly newly created suburbs, protecting those middle class enclaves that still remain within cities from working class and poor people, right? So it becomes a way of, you know, and especially as we roll back the welfare state, it becomes a primary way of controlling um, dispossessed populations and at the same time showing up the interests of the middle class majority white middle class, but also other groups as well. So we should be, be mindful of that too. But I think we have to get back to that, right? Ultimately for me, I don't think it's enough to talk about um, defunding police. It's not enough to even talk about right-sizing police departments and changing the character or the scope of things that police respond to on a day-to-day basis. We also have to get back to this, this matter of inequality. The millions of Americans who are locked out of the affluent society, they weren't allowed to participate in the American dream or attain it in the ways that other people were, um, black and brown folks, but also a lot of whites within, you know, in the Rust Belt towns, a lot of these people who voted for Trump, right? People in, in the heartland of America who don't necessarily see a path towards some kind of economic security. And I think that's why they're so resentful of, you know, other people who they see as having advantages that they don't. We have to get back to the question of inequality. I'm less concerned with abolition of, of police as such as with the abolition of the very conditions that police are there to manage, right? So getting rid of the kind of deep inequality that we have. I mean, I think in, we definitely want to want to right size and scale back some of these overblown police departments. But if we don't also deal with the inequality, you know, as you said, we'll be right back in the same place that we are now, right? And I think that's one of the dangers of the defund rhetoric. It doesn't go deep enough. You know, it's not just about rerouting funds that are used for police to social programs. It's also about dealing with the kind of inequality that exists in most cities where every year most cities commit, you know, uh, deep amounts of public funds to incentivize all manner of commercial downtown and real estate development, right? They do that at the expense of citizens, at the expense of people who don't even have a place to live, right? And so until we can sort of shift into that kind of conversation, I think we'll stay you know, pretty much stagnant. Where we may see some reforms, body cameras in some places, people are still pushing for that, maybe some right-sizing of departments in a few places, but we still have to get back to this fundamental question of inequality, you know, that, that I think is the reason why police, um, it's the reason why they exist. It always has been, but it's the reason why there's this interesting contradiction in the U S where we both love them because many of us benefit from police officers. You know, those of us who have homes and living in, you know, nice parts of the country. And it also is a place of control. It's a, a, a mechanism of control for those persons who've been locked out. You write, this moment has been a triumph for Black Lives Matter activists, but once the plumes of tear gas dissipate and compassion fatigue sets in, the real beneficiaries will likely be the neoliberal Democrats and the capitalist blocs they serve. Why be concerned over neoliberal Democrats being the beneficiaries of the police violence protest movement? Do you think that concern could be an obstacle to the possibilities, the potentials uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement or this anti-police violence movement? Or does do you think it opens 
you to the possibilities of this moment? Uh, I think I think both, right? So I think that it, it I think that it's a it's tough to call right now, right? This is the difficult thing about commenting on some of these things is everything is changing so rapidly. My concern is I don't think people fully appreciate the fundamentally liberal nature of Black Lives Matter, right? That certain elements of Black Lives Matter, even organizationally, came out of the foundation world. People are losing sight of this, right? There are elements that come straight out of the foundation world. So it's not just a matter of co-optation. I've got friends who believe now that now that uh, Amazon and various foundations are stepping up to support um, Black Lives Matter or civil rights organizations or anti-incarceration uh, uh, organizations, that this is co-optation. It's actually not. It's convergence, right? Because some of these organizations were already moving along the same path. It's not necessarily incompatible with um, you know, uh, the plans of, of some of these corporations is not incompatible with their interests, right? I mean, we've, we've had, we have a long history of uh, corporate multiculturalism. And this, at this moment, just seems very much like a revitalization of those ideas, not necessarily something new. Um, even during the Black Power period, you know, various uh, foundations and corporations stepped in to, to give an operational definition to what people understood as black power. And I think the same thing is happening now uh, all over again. But we have to be clear. This is why I think that, you know, as much as we can expose how easily, you know, uh, certain elements of Black Lives Matter become cajoled and supported by, you know, mainstream institutions, the more we can begin to carve out a much more progressive, um, and I think ultimately more effective way of addressing these issues, which is to, to shift away from a politics of recognition towards a politics that's focused on redistribution. Um, and, and again, in a real, real deep way, because we, you know, we're, we're already in a, in a terrible spot. I mean, I think this is the other thing that gets, that gets lost in this last few weeks of, of protests. I think on the one hand, it's, it's remarkable that we saw, um, we saw so many different protests across the country, right? We saw, you know, I think upwards of 500 um, different towns and, and cities that had protests. And so that was great. We also saw a multicultural, a multiracial, and intergenerational populations of people who turned out for these different, um, different events and, and actions. But I think what, what we also have to maybe spend more time thinking about was the meanings of the riots, right? Because I've actually mentioned to a few people, I think the, there were the George Floyd protest and there were also the Donald Trump riots, right? Where we saw, you know, the kind of rioting that has not happened in this country, right? These are not the ghettoized rebellions of the late sixties or, uh, or even, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore, which were fairly contained in small scale. This was massive rioting. I mean, here in Chicago, you know, and, and looting, right? People, um, you know, stretching out into the suburbs to, to loot stores, right? And I think we also saw people looting commercial, central commercial districts, you know, not, not again, not ghettoized rebellions, but people actually going into major commercial districts. And this speaks to the kind of uncertainty, the economic insecurity, the high levels of unemployment that existed partially as a result of the pandemic, but we've already, we were already moving in that direction. Right? We were already moving into a situation where many Americans felt like the old middle-class uh, dream was no longer attainable. And I think that's what some of this is about as well. You know, George Floyd may have been, you know, the wick and the Molotov cocktail, but there are other things that are happening here that we also should pay attention to. And I think there's a, there's an opportunity to again have these deeper conversations about redistribution, um, but we have to push it. We have to push past the lazy ways of only thinking about inequality within the United States in terms of race, because that even even that is inaccurate, right? I mean, it, it makes me kind of um, you know get a little bit of a, a private, I guess, chuckle when I hear you know millionaires as well as celebrity athletes talk about the experience of George Floyd like it could have happened to them. Well, that's highly unlikely, right? It's highly unlikely that 
these people will be subjected to the kind of routine policing that somebody like George Floyd was subjected to, or, or even someone like, like Eric Garner, right? Or Alton Sterling. I mean, these were people who were in many cases unemployed. They were people who were engaged in um, survival type crimes, you know, selling loose cigarettes, selling pirated CDs, which is what Alton Sterling was doing. Or in the case of George Floyd, accused of having used the counterfeit $20 bill. So I think these, these um, you know, this is a different population, even of black people. These are, these are black people who are the most dispossessed. And we can find the same kinds of people in other ethnic groups in other parts of the country if we widen our, our lens. So I think, I think you're right. I think the opportunity is here. But we have to be leery of how easy this can be picked up by foundations, by centrist Democrats, and of course by corporations who simply want to use this as a way of, of um, expanding their market share. And I think what they really did was deflect attention away from the kinds of real labor practices they had um, you know, and the challenges they were facing before uh, these protests broke out. So what does it say to you about organizations like, because you talk about this gestural anti-racism that was already evident at uh, Amazon, and you mentioned how Jeff Bezos has donated all this money to Black Lives Matter, including the Amazon CEO wrote, I have a 20-year-old son and I simply don't worry that he might be choked to death while being detained one day. It's not something I worry about. Black parents can't say the same. So Bezos pledges. $10 $10 million in uh, support of social justice organizations, the ACLU Foundation, the Brennan Center for Justice, the Equal Justice Initiative, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, and so on and so on, and Black Lives Matter. So what does it say to you about these organizations for accepting this money when in on the other end of the spectrum you see Jeff Bezos within his company having very poor worker relations not having the correct uh, protective equipment at the beginning of the pandemic for overworking and underpaying and firing people who try to organize labor unions what does it say about these organizations when they accept this money well i mean some of them don't have a commitment to that kind of pro labor politics, right? I mean, some of those. I've also heard, and this is just, um, you know, I just heard this recently, that some of those organizations have not formally accepted the money yet. And it may not have even been a political stance for them, but it may have had to do with their own accounting and, and other concerns they had about, about budgets. So I think, I think um, you know, it, we'll have to wait and see, like, how it actually plays out. I mean, that was the initial announcement. But, um, some of those organizations do not have the same strong commitment to, um, to labor, right? I mean, it's, and there's been tensions about this before. So I think, I think that um, it could be that they don't have a commitment. It could also be that they figure, well, this, this money will allow them to do good, and therefore they should take it. But I think the, the, the longer run issue, right, is it helps to, it helps to distract us, right? And also it helps to possibly distract those organizations from, again, dealing with the real heart of the matter, which is that we have overblown, oversized, outsized police departments that are primarily charged with doing the work that a welfare state used to do, and that generous public policy, public goods, um, public works, jobs programs could do to improve the lives of millions of Americans. And I think that's, the, that's the, the problem with it, right? It distracts, it deflects, it reroutes uh, the attention that could go towards something different, something more substantive, um, and instead keeps us stuck in this idea that this is primarily a racial, um, and really an undying racial problem in the United States, when I think it's actually something different. Let's get to that something different. You write it, it you mentioned, sorry, Adolf uh, Reed Jr.'s article, I think it's from 2015 or 2016, that was also at nonsite.org. Uh, how racial disparity does not help make sense of patterns of racial violence, which you said you write should be read again and often during this moment of resurgent Black Lives Matter sentiment. You add that perhaps the most important part point in Reed's two, uh, 2016 essay, there it is, uh, 2016 essay 
essay is his insistence that Black Lives Matter and cognate notions like the new Jim Crow are empirically and analytically wrong and advance an equally wrong-headed set of solutions. He does not deny the fact of racial disparity in criminal justice, which is incredibly important, but points us towards a deeper causation and the need for more fulsome political interventions. Again, simple sum- summary for people who may not have read The New Jim Crow. Simple summary of Michelle Alexander's uh, argument is there was racially driven slavery, then freedom was won, followed by Jim Crow as a blowback against that freedom. The civil rights era overcame Jim Crow. Then the new Jim Crow, which is mass incarceration, is the new racially driven oppression of black people. And other people of color. You are not the only one who is critical of this work. Past guest on our show, as you and I have discussed in the past, who you cite often, James Foreman Jr., Pulitzer uh, Prize-winning author of Locking Up Our Own. He sees Alexander not considering the role of black politics supporting tough-on-crime laws as an oversight, leading readers to believe racism and racism alone drives the mass incarceration state and fuels carceral power. If my summary is fair, what is missed when we believe racism and racism alone drives the carceral state and fuels carceral power? So there are a couple of things. I mean, in some places, right, um, a Black Lives Matter slogan totally makes sense, right? It captures exactly the problems that exist. So here in Chicago, um, around 72% of those persons who are killed by police within the city of Chicago or African-American, right? Um, which is far beyond the proportion of the, the population, right? We only make up, I think, one-third of Chicago's population, but yet 72% of those persons killed by police. Nationally, that number changes, right? It's, it's more like 24% of those persons killed by police are black. So the other 76% are not black, but how do we explain that phenomenon. I think this is what the piece that Reed wrote uh, was really pushing us to, to reconsider. Like, why, why don't we think about that, those other deaths and try to explain them? What is it, what is it about those other, um, that other 76% where people, you know, there's something in common that they have, not just the fact of their death, but the conditions of their lives, right, actually matters. And to me, the best example of how this gets lost, right, um, you go back to 2016, the July 4th weekend of, uh, of 2016, when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are killed, we see a wave of protest that erupts. It was actually probably the last major um, wave of Black Lives Matter protests before the, the more recent ones. And we, we organize around those, those two deaths because we see them, right? They're videotaped and they're circulated via social media they fit the narrative that this is something that happens to black people. And you'll hear, you'll hear all sorts of activists grab a mic and say, this never happens to whites, or this never happens to anyone else. It's only black men who get treated in this way. And yet that same week that Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed, 10 other people nationally were killed by police, right? Or 10 people altogether. So you had three uh, African-American men. You had, um, six Latinos, mostly in California in the Southwest, and you had one white uh, youth who was killed in, I think, Fresno, California. So 10 people altogether were killed, but only two become the flashpoints for political organizing. And I think, you know, when we, when we look at the numbers, like more broadly and across the years, for one, police killings of civilians have actually been on the decline in the United States for some, year, for some time. We've become more politicized by it because now we have access to, you know, we become witnesses to these, these crimes, right? We become witnesses to these killings. But ultimately, the numbers have been on a decline. And I think the numbers, again, reflect not a racial problem as such, but a broader problem within the, in the uh, country as far as those persons who occupy um, the poorest, either, either the poorest, segments of the working class are those persons who live in places where particular modes of policing that are designed to control these poor segments are dominant. So even if you live in that area, you could still be subjected to the same kind of policing, right? No matter what your, your class status, right? So I think, I think this is the, the bigger issue, but when we, when we take a strictly racial uh, vantage point, then the solution becomes sensitivity training, 
the solution becomes something else, right? Like let's ref, you know, let's defund police and then fund programs specific to black youth and not thinking through again, the role that the, that police plays within the society overall to shore up and protect middle-class lifestyles, middle-class interests in terms of property and housing and everything else. And at the same time to relegate control and subordinate working class and poor people. Um, another, you know, example we could use, I mean, think about the plight of sex workers in this country, right? And whether those are black or white, uh, straight, uh, cisgendered or trans sex workers, they're subjected to continuous policing throughout the society, no matter which city we're talking about, no matter it's a small town, they're constantly harassed and harangued by, by police and routinely brought in uh, on arrest and charged and, and in some cases uh, incarcerated. How do we figure, how do we factor in those aspects, right? That these are, um, in many cases, people who are relying upon either criminalized forms of work or engaged in some sort of survival crime, or petty theft. And that becomes the precipitating event of uh, a potentially fatal encounter with police. Right. These are, this is the thing that's missing. Right. If we, if we tend to, to automatically take what happened today and connect it back to 1619 or, um, you know, early 20th century black criminalization, you know, in, in American cities and not think about it within our own context, because I think this is this is ultimately where we have to go. It's great that many um, whites are are concerned about these issues, right? And want to show up and they're, they're concerned now in ways that they weren't before. My worry is that this doesn't necessarily trans, trans uh, fur or, or it doesn't necessarily transition into a commitment to real politics, right? Which is to say, I'm, it's not just I'm, I am opposed to police killings and I stand with Black Lives Matter, which is the the trending thing for people to do, but to actually say, I don't want to live in a society where we permit this kind of inequality. I don't want to live in a society where it's okay for, uh, you know, for who you, who you become, what sort of education you receive is dependent upon how much money your parents have, where they can afford to live. Right. That shouldn't, that should be where we're heading as far as, as far as a conversation not just simply the symbolic gestures and expressions of, of goodwill, you know, checking in with, with black friends, but actually engaging in, in a different, you know, reevaluation of this society. Um, but I, I don't think we're quite there yet. I actually think that for a while, many people are going to be, you know, enjoying this kind of, of uh, moment of protest and, and um, reconsideration in the abstract way but not necessarily go towards a politics that demands sacrifice, like real solidarity. Cause that's the difference. I mean, showing up and, or changing your Facebook profile, you know, social media profile to show that you're in solidarity. That's not solidarity. Solidarity is actually being involved with other people and being willing to take risk in order to, to create something different in order to advance the interests that you all have in common. And that's not, I haven't seen that yet, right? I mean, taking real risk, not, not um, just engaging in symbolic uh, politics. And so, again, I think we have to have a different kind of conversation that goes beyond, um, you know, outrage. It goes beyond um, a momentary um, feeling of, of connection or concern with minority populations, but, but towards a deeper reconsideration of this society which, you know, we, that's one of the fronts we haven't succeeded on, right? We've, we've actually been pretty good at, at various moments at anti-discrimination, um, and we could do better. But I think the deeper uh, question of sharing is a bigger problem for many Americans, right? Uh, it's all good until you say you can't have certain things because other people should be able to have those things as well, right? They should be able to have a house and... Um, you know, not have to worry about 
uh, meeting their basic needs, right? That's a different kind of conversation. I hope I live long enough to hear that conversation, not just the one about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and how people should feel about their contribution to, to racism and reproducing racism. And you point out that, you know, white guilt and black outrage is just not enough. And that seems to be what this, at least aspects of this movement seem to be motivated by. And this, those just aren't a way towards real, true political transformation, as you argue in your writing. First of all, Cedric, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. I really have enjoyed our two conversations that we've had on the show. People can find your conversation with us back in May of 2019 at our website right now, thisishell.com, when they search on the name Cedric, because there's been other Johnsons on the show, and Cedric, I think he's the only Cedric on the show. So I've got one last question for you, Cedric. We have been speaking with African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the nonsite.org article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. And I strongly suggest that everybody read this article because... While we have been talking about it for 40 minutes, we could talk about this for another 40 minutes because this really is an outstanding work. And people people just have to remember there is nothing that is above criticism, and criticism can make things better. Our final question for you, as it is for all of our guests, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. If the choice is neoliberal... Democrats benefiting from this moment or far-right Republicans, isn't it better that the Democrats do benefit than, more than the Republicans? How would you respond to those who th- say they support the movement against police violence but also see neoliberal Democrats benefiting by displacing Republicans in the Senate, House, and White House, Senate, you know, House of Representatives and White House, this fall as some sort of victory for racial justice? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I was critical of the uh, the rollout of the uh, justice and policing um, bill. Um, but, you know, my views tend to be uh, critical, but also, you know, complex. And I think if that bill is able to pass somehow, and it's able to reduce the, the numbers of, or the likelihood of, of uh, excessive force incidents, I'm all for it, right? And I, I actually do think that despite you know my criticism of the symbolism of it all i think that this moment could possibly change some of the local conditions we might see an experiment in minneapolis that you know may become uh replicated in other places if if they're able to downsize the police department and roll out other effective strategies for achieving public safety I'm all for that, right? If if it's something that that's gonna that we can see possibly working, and so I think again we're gonna see in a lot of different cities, different towns, experiments. This is great if it means that the that the Democrats are able to to um, gain power in some places and become a much more hospitable group of people to deal with at the local level, at the state level, in certain places. I'm all for that as well. But again, I think dismantling police departments or even building in accountability measures is not enough, right? That's not going to take away from the reason why we have stress policing and militarized policing at this moment. A lot of it has to do with the inequality, the persistence of some survival crimes, and Americans' fears about crimes, maybe more than anything else, right? People's concerns about theft and, um, you know, other, other things that keep them up at night when they think about the lifestyles that they lead or the idea that they should be able to move, in, move about within cities to the tourist zones, to various entertainment and commercial districts without being harassed or harangued by somebody else. So I think the inequality part has to be central. I don't have a whole lot of faith that the Democrats are going to embrace deep redistributive public policy on their own, right? I think we have a better shot at getting them to do it than Republicans. And that's why I'm more in favor of seeing, you know, at least some change in that regard. But we still have to be prepared to fight with the new conditions that are produced out of that. 
Cedric, I am looking forward to a future where we can have you up here in studio for an appearance, and I'm also looking forward to a future where I can buy you a beer, sir. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. This is another fantastic conversation with you. And again, people can hear our earlier interview with Cedric from last year by going to thisishell.com and searching on his name. Cedric Johnson, thank you so much for being our first guest this week. Hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On June 15th, 1667, 353 years ago today, Monday, Dr. Jean-Baptiste Denis, personal physician to King Louis XIV of France, not a bad gig, made medical history for performing the first fully documented human blood transfusion, which is to say the patient Dr. Denis was trying to treat was human. However, the blood was not. And for whatever reason, I'm betting this is the kind of thing that really pisses off the Roman Catholic Church back in the day. Dr. Denis used the blood of a sheep, injecting it with, into a 15-year-old boy who had lost a large amount of his own blood by being bled as a treatment for a previous illness, a common medical practice in the 17th century, a far too common medical practice, actually. So a boy gets sick, they bleed him, they bleed him too much, and they have to come up with a blood transfusion to save him from the original cure for whatever the disease was he had. Yep, that sounds like Western medicine, all right. Uh, the boy's reaction to the transfusion could have been deadly. His white blood cells reacted to the intrusive sheep's blood as if it were another illness, but against all odds, the boy survived. No word on the sheep. Modern medical historians believe that the amount of sheep's blood must have been too small to kill the boy. However, his survival gave Dr. Denis the misplaced confidence to perform similar transfusions on two more patients. And when he used the sheep's blood in an attempt to cure a man of mental illness, the patient died and Dr. Denis was arrested for murder. That's because, as we all know, in the 21st century, if someone... As a mental illness, you don't give them a transfusion of blood, but a transfusion of brain. Everybody knows that. Dr. Denis was acquitted, but transfusions were made illegal in France, and Dr. Denis quit his medical practice. More than 150 years would pass before any doctor tried blood transfusions again. Dr. Denis kills a man whose mental illness he tried to cure with a blood transfusion, and nobody does another blood transfusion for another 150 years. Why did you think a blood transfusion would cure a mental illness? Why did a boy almost bleed out on a doctor's orders, forcing the profession to come up with the idea of blood transfusions? What was with the 17th century medicine and its blood fetish? Sure, things suck today, but at least the medical profession wasn't solely focused on blood and only blood as holding the answers to every medical mystery. Seriously, those doctors are freaks. In Rotten History, June 16, 1944, 76 years ago this Tuesday, tomorrow, George Stinney, a 14-year-old African-American boy, was executed for the murder of two white girls aged 7 and 11, found dead in a ditch near his home in Alcolu, South Carolina. Alcolu? The arresting officer said Stinney had confessed to the crime but provided no signed confession. It's probably didn't. Though Stinney was a minor, he was denied contact with his parents, and he never saw a lawyer before his trial, which took place in a single day. Just to be clear, this was justice conducted by the greatest generation at the height of their war against fascism. And if this court case doesn't look like fascism, I don't know what does. The only testimony was provided by three police officers, and the public defender neither cross-examined them nor called any other witnesses. The all-white jury took ten minutes to arrive at a guilty verdict, and there was no appeal. Stinney's parents were allowed to see him only once before he went to the electric chair. The chair was designed for adults, and Stinney was barely five feet tall, so the executioners had trouble putting the electrodes on him properly. They took the Bible he was carrying, placed it on the chair, and made him sit on it. Well, I'm pretty sure that's probably not the original intent of the Bible as a booster seat for electric chairs. With more than 2,000 volts of electricity... It took them four minutes to kill the boy, so they tortured him too. He was the youngest person executed in the United States in the 20th century. Seventy years later, in 2014, a circuit judge vacated the conviction, citing new evidence, and ruled that Stinney's confession had been forced by police. So if you want to cash that check for justice in the United States, expect it to be postdated by around 70 years.
Recent investigations have pursued archival evidence that the real murderer was a white man named George Burke. Hmm, everybody's surprised by that outcome, which is probably the saddest and most predictable. And at any moment in rotten, rotten history that's ever been read on This Is Hell, the saddest and most predictable of any moment ever read on Rotten History. Finally, on June 17, 1967, 53 years ago this Wednesday, the People's Republic of China detonated a 3.3 megaton hydrogen bomb, thus becoming the fourth nation to possess a thermonuclear weapons capability after the U.S., the Soviet Union, and the U.K. The bomb was dropped from an aircraft or from an aircraft over China's Lop Nur test range, a desolate salt de- desert in its far western region of Xinjiang, where in more recent years a local separatist movement by local Uyghur Muslims has been systematically and brutally oppressed by the Chinese government. So that explains the tenacity of the Uyghur movement. They're all radioactive mutant superheroes. That's Rotten History, and this is how Alex, what's happening on the rest of this week's shows? Uh, on Monday morning, we are going to be talking with... Tuesday, you, Tuesday sorry, sorry, yeah, Tuesday. Right. Today's Monday. Uh, Tuesday, we're going to be talking with Eugene McCarr about his book, The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. Finally. University Press. Finally. Finally. Then, uh, Wednesday, we're going to talk with Richard Hunsinger, who'll be back on the show with Nathan Eisenberg to talk about their piece for Cosmonaut Mag. Mask off crisis and struggle in the pandemic. Thursday, I am still working on plus Jeffy. All right, I'm really hoping we can get Maryam Kaba. That was an amazing op-ed in yesterday's New York Times, and we've had her on before, and we've had uh, featured two different books on the show where she's written the preface or the introduction to the book. So I'm really hoping we can get the police activist here in Chicago, Maryam Kaba, back on the show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Captooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Cedric Johnson for returning to This Is Hell. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for his work on Rotten History. Always special thanks to the people behind the scenes like Theron Humiston, who built this studio pretty much, and Richard Norwood, who built our archives. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>